If you would take your Bibles, please, and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It seems that almost every year, as we approach Easter, I have a debate within myself over what I should preach. Should I continue in a series that we happen to be in at that particular point? Right now we're in the Gospel of Mark. Or should I preach on what Easter means, the place of the resurrection? You might say, well, of course, Damon, you should preach on Easter, on the resurrection. Why wouldn't you? Well, my response is that every Sunday is Resurrection Day. We meet on Sunday to worship God because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus was raised from the dead. So in the same way, we've just had the Lord's Supper communion. We proclaim his death in the same way when we meet on Sunday, we proclaim his resurrection. So gathering on Sunday is, is a proclamation that in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. By the way, we call him the Lord Jesus Christ because of what Peter said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, that God has raised Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. These are titles that are his uh, after the resurrection. So part of me says, no, uh, I should just continue with whatever series uh, we're in. On the other hand, uh, I'm concerned that Easter may be forgotten or come to mean something completely different than what is originally intended from the truth of it. You know, that it's something symbolic. It's like spring after winter, you know, that... You have death and you have life, you know, the flowers begin to, plants begin to grow and everything turns green. Or that Easter means that Jesus continues to live in our hearts. So I have decided today, on this Easter Sunday, to speak about the resurrection. And to do so by presenting some things for you to consider what we find in Scripture. The first thing that I would have you consider is that Jesus was not the first person in the Bible to be raised from the dead. We are told of three such persons in the Old Testament. And I will tell you the stories briefly in case you're not familiar. The first is the story of the widow of Zarephath, her son. This is in 1 Kings chapter 17. The story begins when there's a conflict between Elijah the prophet and Ahab, the king who is worshiping false gods. And so Elijah prays that it will not rain, and it doesn't rain, in fact, for three and a half years. The Lord told him to do this and then told him, go over to the east side of the Jordan, you know, out of Ahab's reach, and stay by a particular brook so you'll have water. And ravens brought him bread every day. I don't know if you're familiar with this story. There came a particular point where the brook dried up, and so God said, okay, go back over and go near Sidon, which is just north of Israel. And... Uh, Go there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So no longer the ravens, but this widow is going to provide him with food. So Elijah goes and he meets this widow and he tells her to make him some bread. Rather presumptuous, I think. Um, 
she responds, as surely as the Lord lives, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And that's precisely what happened. Miraculously, she always had flour. She always had oil to make bread. Sometime later, her son gets sick and he dies. Um, Elijah says to her, give me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. This is the first uh, such account in the Old Testament of someone returning to life. The second is also a son, a son of the Shunammite woman. This is the story of Elisha, who was uh, the one who came after Elijah. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 4. He happened to go to the town of Shunem, and there was a well-to-do woman there, and she urged Elisha to come and eat with her and her husband and have a meal, and he did. And so it was his custom, whenever he would come by, uh, come through town, he would eat with them. And she told her husband, you know what, we need to make a little room for him so that whenever the prophet comes by, he can stay there. And in this room, there would be a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp for him. This is now known commonly as the prophet's chamber. And many churches have, in fact, done that. They've created a small apartment for a missionary to stay in or a traveling pastor or evangelist. It's based on this particular story. Elisha wants to know what he can do to repay her kindness. And she's like, you know, I have everything I need. But his assistant, Gehazi, interesting character, uh, said to him, you know, her husband's old and she doesn't have any kids. So Elisha says to her, okay, this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. And that's what happened. But one day, the boy died. And if you read the account, it might have been some type of heat stroke or sunstroke. He was out in the field with his father, and he said, my head, my head, and, and he died. So uh, she sent, uh, she went to where Elisha was, Mount, Car Mount Carmel, which is quite a distance. Um, and she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? She's not happy. So Elisha sends Gehazi with his staff and says, put it on the boy. He does, nothing happens. Elisha travels uh, to Shunem, and when he reached the house, the boy was there lying uh, dead, lying on the couch. He went in, shut the door of the, and the two of them, on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got up on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and he, as he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. 
Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him one more, uh, once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. It's the second account of someone being raised from the dead. The first with Elijah, the second with Elisha. You may remember that Elisha's prayer was that he would have a double portion of the power that Elijah had. Well, the third story to me is the most intriguing. This is found in 2 Kings 13. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. So where Elijah is seen as responsible for the one case, Elisha for two. And the second case was after he was already gone. So three in the Old Testament. We have three in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The first is the story of the daughter of Jairus, which we studied just a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 5. The second is the son of a widow woman from the town of Nain, N-A-I-N. This is in Luke 7. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. They went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and the Lord gave him back to his mother. The third case, I think, is perhaps the most famous, and that is the story of Lazarus. Um, of all the people that we have looked at and will look at, he was dead the longest. He was dead for four days, and his body had already begun to decompose. His sister said, you know, he already stinks, you know, because Jesus wanted them to open the tomb. Jesus stood at his tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. It is worth noting that this didn't make the religious leaders happy. And so we read in chapter 12, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They don't only want to kill Jesus, who raised him from the dead, they want to kill Lazarus as well. So three in the Old Testament, three in the Gospels. And then we have three that happen after the crucifixion. The first one is perhaps the most difficult to understand. This is in Matthew 27. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. The tombs opened or broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Only Matthew mentions this, and that's all he says about it. But we have people who were raised to life at the death of Jesus. The second case is that of Dorcas. We saw this also when we looked at the healing or the raising of the daughter of Jairus. This is in Acts chapter, 20, uh, chapter 9. The third case is that of Eutychus. Uh, seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Apparently Paul was preaching rather lengthily. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. 
Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So three in the Old Testament, three in the Gospels, and three after the death of Jesus. So Jesus was not the only person to be raised from the dead. But Jesus was the only person to be resurrected. Um, all the people that I've mentioned, the, these cases, they all died. Otherwise, they'd be with us today. Uh, the son of the widow of Zarephath, he died at some point in his life. And the son of the Shunammite woman and the man who was thrown in with Elisha's bones, these people all died. They were brought back to life, but Jesus was resurrected. He was resurrected with a new body. So that's the first thing to consider. The second is that Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of new creation. Those in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and after the death of Jesus, who, was, who were raised alive, didn't have some kind of new body. They had the same body that they had before. They didn't have some, something new about them, except that they could now, they were alive. They could breathe. They could move. And I think this is what Jesus, you know, when Jesus talks about new life, the resurrection, this is what he means when he speaks to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. That is, he will be resurrected. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? In each case, as I've said, the person who was raised did in fact die again. But Jesus is alive. He did not die again. One writer put it this way, without the belief in the resurrection as something beyond the crucifixion, the note of new creation which permeates the New Testament is inexplicable. inexplicable. Such as in 2 Corinthians 5.17, I think one of the first Bible verses I learned as a child. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And it seems to me that many of the Opponents of the early church understood this far better than many Christians do today. Um, they objected to the preaching of the gospel. And why is that? Why were they opposed to the preaching of the good news? Because it announced that there was a new creation that was coming. A new order had been launched. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 that the gospel was foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. We could also add in today's world, it is impossible for the Epicurean, it is undesirable for the Platonist, unnecessary for the Deist, meaningless for the Pantheist, and scary for the Emperor. Who are all these people? Who are all these different philosophies? An Epicurean holds a belief that the world does what it does under its own power. It develops, it changes in random ways without any outside interference. Atoms move randomly and sometimes they bang into, such a, into one another and create new things. That's all there is. When you die, that's it. It's the end of the story. When we die, we die. So resurrection, new life, new creation, no. It's impossible for the Epicurean. For the Platonists, there are in fact two planes of reality, the ideal and the, the real, if you wish. And this is where things are truly important. 
Um, and this is just sort of where we sort of muddle around. Um, so physical resurrection, why would you want that? That's still part of the muddling around here. Uh, Platonists, yeah, no need, no desire for resurrection. The deist believes that God created the world and wound it up and then he left. Um, and that all truth is subject to the authority of human reason. We decide what is right, what is wrong. We decide what is truth and what isn't. So there's no divine intervention. There's no resurrection. The pantheist believes that, in fact, the universe is, in fact, God. And when, when you put it all together, there is no God but the combined substance and forces of the universe. And so new order, new creation, new life, why? You know, the universe is God. Why the emperor? It represents those who are in political power and assume nearly total authority over their domain. And to be told that there is now a new creation, a new order, is something that is rather scary for them. And I think in the first century, people knew this. Here in the 21st century, I think many Christians have forgotten this. One of the things, let me just an aside here to keep in the back of your minds. Uh, there is no question about God. There's no question about Jesus. No question about the resurrection that comes from a neutral standpoint. In other words, when somebody says, well, I want to know about the resurrection. I want to know about Jesus. I want to know about God. They're not doing so from a neutral position. They already have certain presuppositions. They already have a worldview. And that affects how they will hear what you have to say about these things. We'll talk more about the new creation near the end of the sermon. The third thing that I would have you consider today is that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event. That is, it really happened. The New Testament accounts are really clear about this. And we should be as well. History matters. Okay. Um, if you think history doesn't matter, then in fact the resurrection is not important, nor the evidence that it did in fact happen. Who cares? In 1 Corinthians 15, where we are, I want to read the first uh, eight verses here, and you will notice that Paul is saying, in essence, it really happened. We have historical evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. Beginning in verse number one of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to warn you, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Consider what we find in the gospel accounts. In Matthew, the women hurried from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. They went to tell the disciples suddenly Jesus meets them and says, Greetings. 
They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Mark, uh, we are told that Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, and he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, uh, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And then she went and told the others. And Jesus afterward appeared to two of them while they were walking in the country. These two are mentioned in Luke chapter 24, the two on the road to Emmaus. Uh, They're walking along and Jesus suddenly shows up. They don't know it's him. And he begins to show them from the Old Testament how that all the things that happened to him had to happen. They were to fulfill scripture. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They are so excited, they go back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still, let, still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then what we've just read in John chapter 20, uh, his appearing to Mary Magdalene. And then later, uh, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He appeared to them again. Thomas wasn't with him that first appearance, and he really doubted that what they saw was true. And then he did see Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And finally, in chapter 21, uh, Peter goes back fishing and Jesus is there. And they say, it's the Lord. And he has fish that he's cooking and bread that he's cooking on the seashore there. So what we have is historical affirmation that the resurrection happened. By the way, it's been argued that the gospel writers wrote down what had happened but they didn't really have the vocabulary to describe it. Because while others had been raised from the dead, they don't say, well, Jesus came back from the dead like Lazarus, or like the widow's son of Nain, or the daughter of Jairus, or go back to the Old Testament. They don't say that at all. What they do say is something happened, and that Jesus was in their midst. They were witnesses. It is striking, I've told you this before, that women are the first witnesses to the resurrection, Um, particularly in light of Jewish custom. Josephus wrote, from women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. So don't listen to women. It is also striking that the first witnesses of the birth of Jesus were shepherds who were not allowed to give testimony in court because they were considered untrustworthy. Some people might say, 
Well, Damon, what you've said is really interesting, but it's really not important. Because what's important isn't what happens in the muddle and mess here of life, but these, these transcendent truths that are out there. So we should think more in terms of the world of ideas rather than that of space and time. So we should think about love and not, not bother with the matter of the resurrection. So some would argue that the resurrection as a historical event was not possible and it's not important. You may remember some time ago the Jesus Seminar which has already faded from public consciousness. And there were two things that they said about the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, they said it never happened. Okay, it's impossible. Um, there's no historical evidence for it, which is plainly false. And by the way, the, the Jesus Seminar tried to be cute about it. They actually had a press conference and they brought out a, a registered nurse. And her purpose was to say, you know, when people die, they tend to stay dead. So Jesus didn't, was not resurrected. But the second thing they said is, it doesn't really matter. Christians can still celebrate Easter with its symbolic message of hope and new life. I, I don't know about you, but I don't see the hope or new life if, in fact, Jesus was not raised from the dead. Even though the resurrection is false, they say, it still has significance because of the story it tells. I've mentioned this over the years. Uh, this is back in, in the olden days when L.A. had two newspapers, the L.A. Times and the L.A. Herald Examiner. I don't know if you, some of you remember that. I used to get the Herald Examiner um, because of the sports section. Uh, and every Saturday they had a religion page. And this one particular, uh, it was before Easter, they had something from Hans Kung, who was a German theologian. And he wrote this, Without Easter, there would be no gospel, not a single narrative, not a letter in the New Testament. In other words, no resurrection, there's nothing. For some reason, that time I also got the LA Times, because it was the Saturday before Easter, to look at their religion section. And there in the LA Times, he said, the resurrection is not an event in space and time, not an object of historical knowledge, but a call and an offer to faith. So it's like, well, you can't have the New Testament without the resurrection. Yeah, but the resurrection didn't really happen. Why would there be witnesses? In fact, it didn't happen. Paul would write later in this chapter, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. So it's simply wrong. It's simply wrong. So, am I saying that history is the answer? That in fact, if we look at the historical evidence, we will have the answer. Can a person start with the natural world, with creation, with history, and reason their way to God, reason their way to the resurrection? And I would say no. Many years ago, I went uh, to LACC to hear a Christian speaker uh, preach or speak on evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, evidence that Jesus is God. And when he was finished, there was a young man there, 
rather skeptical and he said, you know, even if everything you say is true, you haven't proved that Jesus is God. And I felt like saying, you're exactly right. We cannot reason our way to the truth. It comes from revelation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So the resurrection changes everything. We now see things that we didn't see before. Does this mean that all the old knowledge is is swept away? That we get rid of everything? No. What it means is that what we did know, we now see in a new light. In a better light, if you wish. We see it as we should. The resurrection interprets our present situation rather than ignoring it. See, if you say, well, the resurrection is just this, you know, Jesus is with us and he loves us and he's with us, then it has nothing to say about the present situation. He is the beginning of the new creation and the new creation interprets the old. We've spoken often about the paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. I would argue that you only understand this if you have the new creation. Otherwise, you do not. The fourth thing that I would have you consider is that the resurrection is divided into two moments. There are two moments of resurrection. The first is that of Jesus, which we remember on Easter Sunday. The second is that of our resurrection. This was something that the Corinthian believers just could not get their minds around. They could not understand or accept it. So if you would, look again at 1 Corinthians 15, now at verse number 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. See, for the Corinthians, resurrection meant resuscitation. And if you think about all the stories that we've looked at, the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and then after the crucifixion, These are people who had not been dead very long. The longest, we think, is probably Lazarus, four days, that he had already begun to decompose. But everybody else had been dead for a day or less. I mean, the Jewish custom is you have to bury someone within 24 hours. So when they take the man and throw him in Elisha's tomb, he's only been dead for about 24 hours. But for the Corinthian believers, they have people who have been dead now for years. 
And so all that's left of them are bones. And if you say, oh, this person will be resuscitated, well, like, yeah, that doesn't happen. Well, Jesus was raised, yeah, but he was only dead for a couple days. So yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead, but yeah, we're not going to be, because, you know, mom and dad are dead, or whomever, grandparents, and they're just bones now. There's no way they can be raised from the dead. They failed to understand that resurrection is quite different from resuscitation. That Jesus was raised with a new body, a new form of existence. By the way, Paul says that some of you, you know, that there are some who say that there is no resurrection, which seems to indicate that not everyone believed that, but there were some within the congregation who were like, how can I be resurrected if, if, if I decompose and all that's left are my bones? Or even after my bones, do all that's left is dust. Um, they were thinking uh, in an incorrect way. Paul says... Resurrection has two moments. Jesus was resurrected, and one day we will be resurrected. His was the beginning of the process, and we will come later on. Resurrection has a two moments. And if you deny the second, then you deny the first. And in today's world, we would say if you deny the first, then you will deny the second as well. You can't say Jesus was raised from the dead but we won't be. Or you can't say, Jesus was not raised from the dead, but we will be. It simply doesn't work that way. And for the sake of argument, Paul says, listen, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the preaching of the apostles is useless. Everything that Paul told the Corinthians was wrong. Secondly, the faith of the Corinthians is useless because it's based on a lie. Thirdly, the apostles are false witnesses because they said that Jesus was raised from the dead. They preached the resurrection. Well, if it didn't happen, then, then they're liars. They're guilty of perjury. And lastly, this all means that the faith of the Corinthians is futile. Yeah, you're just wasting your time. It's a false hope. You're still in your sins, he said. You're lost. You have no hope whatsoever. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. That is, if our hope is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared first to Peter and to the twelve, yeah, if that's what your hope is, then yeah. You should be pitied. But Paul continues. In verse number 20, if ever you would underline a verse in your Bible, this would be it. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. The truth is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, not resuscitation, but resurrection in a new form of existence. It's the beginning of new creation. He's still recognizable. He still has flesh and bones. He still can eat. He ate some fish. But he's able to disappear. He's able to 
come in the midst of the disciples. There are many things about it that are mysterious to us. But Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the first moment. And one day our moment will come when we will also be resurrected. I would say that the resurrection of Jesus is a central event, not only in scripture, but in human history. It is the turning point in human existence. And some might say, well, you know, I, I like Eastern resurrection, but isn't that like laying it on a little bit thick? I mean, isn't that sort of hyperbole? Yes, it's important, maybe really important, but central. Um, And I think the problem is that when we read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, about the first Easter, many come away with the thought of, um, this proves that there's life after death. So that's good. And this proves that Jesus is divine. So that's good as well. Well, yes, there is life after death. Okay, I want to be clear about that. And Jesus is, in fact, divine. But these are not the main points of the resurrection. Some years ago, we went through a series looking at the doctrine of creation, in which I argued we need to have a stronger doctrine of creation. Um, What we saw was when it comes to the matter of creation, if you believe that God created the world, and the result is the world, creation, then you have to believe that God had a purpose for creation. I don't think many people think that far ahead. I mean, if, if they say Jesus, or that God created the world, Colossians 1, that it is Jesus who created the world. Okay, good. But why? What is its purpose? Just to be there. No, no. See, because they'll say, well, the, God created the world to be the world, and then Adam and Eve sinned and screwed it all up. So you have creation, the fall, and then it has to be redeemed, and and then you have consummation. No. God created the world. He created creation for a purpose. The Greek word is telos. It has something to which it is pointing. There is an end point, an end game, if you wish. And it isn't this. It isn't like God created the world and said, okay, that's it. I'm done. Creation is good. He saw that it was very good, but it doesn't really have any purpose except to exist. That simply is not the case. Many people believe that creation was complete until Adam and Eve screwed everything up. No, God had a purpose. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit created this world, his creation, and it had a telos, a purpose. And that purpose was the new creation. This was not to be the end game. This wasn't it. Okay? If we think it is, then, then you go down a completely different path. You go down a completely different path. But if you see creation as pointed toward new creation, when Jesus comes into the world and when he is resurrected from the dead, he is the beginning of new creation. He's the first fruits. This is what new creation is going to look like when we, in that second moment of, cre- of resurrection, are there. We participate. One of the things we also saw is that creation and redemption are connected. 
So the story of Jesus isn't just sort of a, well, let's fix this mess, okay? But they, in fact, go together. Um, they're interwoven. They have a purpose. The new creation, that's what they're pointing ahead to. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And he wrote Genesis, specifically about the creation of the world. And when did he do this? When did Moses write the book of Genesis? We believe it was after Israel had been delivered out of Egypt and are brought to Sinai. At some point when they're in the wilderness, uh, God reveals this to him and he begins to write down the story of creation. Wait a minute. He tells us about creation after Israel was redeemed from slavery. Redemption is as important as the story of creation. So it is in the midst of seeing God as the Redeemer that they come to find out God is also the Creator. And how did they know that what Moses wrote in Genesis 1 and 2 were true? Because of what God had done in delivering them out of Egypt in a miraculous way. They came to know it by faith. The world they live in now is creation, the orderly, life-giving, gracious gift of God who is worthy to be praised. He should be worshipped. They had experience. They had been participants in God's work of redemption. We can see creation as creation only because of God's work of redemption, and that is seen supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, if Jesus had not come into the world, we wouldn't get it. We wouldn't get it. The, the creation, fall, redemption, consummation, we simply would not. And I would say, even though Jesus has come into the world, many people don't get it. And sadly, even many of those who call themselves his people do not. As Christians, we confess that the way things are today is not the way they've always been, nor is it the way they will always be. Yes, the world is a place of pain and suffering. But, as God's people, we confess that the world as it is presently um, will not always be so. This isn't the end game. You know, it is not uncommon for people to speak of the end of the world, the end of civilization. Um, no, this civilization may fall, but the end game is the new creation, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of that. And that's why the resurrection is so important. We must confess that God is in the process of redeeming the world. Paul saw that so clearly, more clearly than we do, that we are ambassadors of Christ. Christ has begun. He's the first one to be resurrected. God is redeeming his creation, and we are participating in that. And that's the way we should live. We should not live as though this is it. This is the end game. End of story. Or, you know, when we die, then we get to go to heaven and we don't have any more problems. Uh, instead of re recognizing that God is 
recreating his world, a new creation. Since Jesus Christ, we know that the world is the creation that God is redeeming. We know this because Jesus came into the world. And so we are to live with expectation and with joy. Jesus was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. Not like all the other people that we talked about who eventually died. He was brought back in a new form. I mean, he could be recognized. There's much about the resurrection we don't fully understand. But he had a new form of existence. It is the beginning of the new creation. If we do not see this, then I think we will conclude that we live in a world without meaning, that creation has no meaning. And in fact, in the last couple centuries, philosophers have come to that conclusion, that the only meaning that this world has is what I give to it. It doesn't have meaning unless I give it meaning. It doesn't have a purpose unless I say what that purpose is. God created the world with an end game in mind, with a purpose, the new creation. And Jesus' resurrection is proof of that. It is the beginning of that. It is the first moment of two moments of resurrection. As Paul put it, but Christ has been raised from the dead. He has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It is in the resurrection of Jesus that we see the beginning of the coming of the new creation. That's one of the reasons why it is so central to the gospel, to the good news. It isn't just that, oh yeah, we get to live after we die. Okay. It isn't just that, well, Jesus was God after all. It is that he has begun the work of new creation. And on the day of resurrection, we will have new bodies without sickness, without pain. Um, It will be new, the new creation. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof of that. Let's pray together. Our Father, Easter has become in many ways uh, part of the culture, part of tradition, new clothes, new hats. It's a time when uh, people celebrate the coming of spring and somehow so easily forgotten is the reality of resurrection, the beginning of new creation. That unlike the others in scripture who were raised from the dead, Jesus was resurrected. He had a new form of existence, which he will never die. And yet he was able to eat, to talk, to be touched. Somehow we oftentimes conveniently sweep these things aside and simply look at Easter as, yes, even though we die one day, we will live again. That is true. But we will live again in the new creation. 
Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. And indeed, there is much that is mysterious to us about death, about resurrection. But in these days, we are reminded of the death of Jesus, a horrible death, of his being buried and of his being resurrected. And while the gospel writers struggled for vocabulary to describe this, um, because this had never happened before, they did describe what happened, that in fact Jesus was raised from the dead. It is the turning point of human history. It is the central event of human existence. We pray by your spirit you would help us to see this and to live in that light. There's much that could be said about Easter. By your grace, I've tried to direct our thoughts in a particular way. May your spirit drive those things that are true home to our hearts. And on this day, may we be filled with joy and expectation that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and one day we will be as well. No pain, no deformities, a new form of existence as what we see in the resurrected Jesus. I thank you for bringing us together on this Easter Sunday. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Again, we remember the Nobley family in this time of loss. Bring them peace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.